Good morning. Many of us enjoy getting outdoors and going for a walk, breathing in the fresh air, enjoying creation, nature, getting some exercise. We have many here who come on the Freedom Trail. I understand sometimes it's over a thousand people a day come into this building for the Freedom Trail. Others walk not just for exercise or for touristic purposes, but for something else. Martin Luther King led a walk for freedom, a march on Washington, which was to advocate for civil rights, for the jobs and the needs of African Americans. Mahatma Gandhi led the Salt March, a protesting British rule. Mao Zhuxi, the uh, Chairman Mao, led the Long March to Yan'an, uh, escaping the nationalist military force. And Nelson Mandela entitled his own journey, The Long Walk to Freedom. If you've participated in any kind of walks like this, or you know people who have, maybe you've experienced some of the joy, some of the electricity, some of the excitement of being part of something bigger than yourself, bigger than our own ordinary lives, if you like. And there's a sort of chemistry in the air of being connected to a charismatic leader on a journey. It can be very costly, but it's so significant and worthwhile. Physically and biologically, our bodies are designed to walk. We're not designed to fly. We're not designed to crawl. We're designed as walkers. And it's no surprise that the Hebrew scriptures use walking as a metaphor for living. Yahweh himself is described as a walker, walking in the garden. Enoch is described as walking for 300 years, whatever that means, with Yahweh himself. And the New Testament, the Greek manuscripts, use this image of walking to signify, to signal a particular aspect of the life in the Spirit. We have the central verse for this book that we've been looking at of Colossians. It's Colossians 2, 6, and 7, where the apostle says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And the main takeaway this morning is keep walking. Keep walking in Him. Keep walking. Keep walking in Him. Keep walking with Jesus. But it's not so easy. For some, raised in a home, maybe a religious home, uh, there were lots of rules, lots of shoulds, lots of shouldn'ts. And perhaps uh, they came to Boston at college, grad school, a career transition, and are exploring other paths. The idea of walking, continuing, keep walking with Jesus just sounds like another, another rule. Not very promising. There are others who've been walking on this journey for some time, and they're tired, they're weary, they're dusty, and really uh, the life that they're living is, well, it's just a series of boxes to check. Check, check, check. And there's little evidence of much joy, not much creativity, not much spontaneity, not much dynamism, not real change, real profound transformation because it's got to be reduced reductionistically to some kind of checklist. And so, keep walking with Jesus can, can be just another box to check. And there are others who 
not for any fault of their own, are subject to unforeseen trauma and suffering. But whatever level, if it's physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, some trauma comes like a tsunami is blown into their, across their past, and to keep walking Jesus, it's just so difficult to grasp even what that means. They're so disoriented, so upended, that what does it really mean to walk with Jesus? Well, I want to look at this sort of ramshackle group of verses at the end of the book, this sort of flotsam and jetsam, if you like, of greetings and instructions that seem so random, and pick out three vital ingredients to keep walking with Jesus, three vital ingredients to walk with Jesus. And the first one in the first section is verse 7 to 11 is comfort. It's comfort. He says, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are. And here's the key thing. And that he may encourage your hearts. And the apostle says later on in verse 11, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. They have been a comfort to me. We know on the first walking journey of the apostle on the Damascus walk that the resurrected Lord, the incarnate God of the universe, revealed himself and said, he will carry my name before kings and Gentiles, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And we know the apostle did suffer. 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 6 reports the beatings, the imprisonments, the stonings, the hungry uh, periods of his life, the sleepless nights escaping over a city wall in a basket. And one occasion we read in Acts, they ate a part of Acts of a, a group of 40 men who were so bound in hatred, so bound in jealousy, so bound bloodthirsty they refused to eat until they had killed the apostle. Yeah, he was very possibly tempted to be discouraged. And yet, the extraordinary thing in this vignette, if you will, this microcosm of what the early church looked like at the end of this chapter, as in the end of other epistles like Romans, we see this diverse category, this diverse assemblage of peoples, Jews and Gentiles. And they were a comfort to him. He says, they were a comfort to me. Now, first reading the, the word comfort, the first thing I, I went to was comfort food. I know that's not what the apostle meant. I know he wasn't going for the comfort food. And then I sort of wondered, well, comfort, sort of thinking of some visiting relative who sort of welcomes us perhaps with open arms and slobbers us with a kiss on the side. So that's sort of comfort. But I don't think that's really sentimentality is what he's talking about here. If you look at the root of the word, particularly in Latin anyway, it means with strength, confortis, like a pianoforte. There's a strength there. And in the Greek New Testament anyway, there's a sense in which this is a consolation in the face of the adversities of death. It's used as an inscription on funeral uh, inscriptions in the ancient Greek Greco-Roman world. And it, what it really signified to them, and possibly this is a nuance here that Paul is picking up on, is that in the face of adversity, in the face of death itself, these individuals had been a strength. They'd been uh, an encouragement to him. 
Tychicus, he talks about him as a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. That prepositional phase is so key because he, Tychicus, had received first from the Lord himself, and then he was able to give out. If we haven't received, we cannot give. And he received that comfort from the Lord. And Onesimus, this extraordinary, fascinating example in verse 9. Flip over a few pages to Philemon, you can read more about the story where this runaway slave had been converted, and now Paul was sending him back to his slave master, to Philemon, to reconcile him, to demonstrate the gospel reverses social and economic categories, and that relational categories are upended by the gospel itself. And yet even Onesimus could be a comfort to the apostle himself. They were described as fellow workers. It's really not a general term used in the New Testament for Christians, but really a badge of honor given to particular people that were associated with this gospel work. Whatever it is, they were a comfort on the journey to keep walking as Paul uh, was to keep walking in his life. And what strikes me in this little assemblage of people is that they're so diverse. There's such a variety of those. And it's a two-way street. You have the apostle who's given great courage and comfort to this fledgling, this new fellowship in Colossae, this provincial town in what is now modern-day Turkey. He's given, he gives, but he also receives. It's a two-way street. And uh, we may be tempted to think, well, what's so, what's the big deal about that? What's so surprising about that? Well, maybe it isn't. Maybe it isn't too surprising, but as I began to think about it, I wondered, actually, if it is a little bit surprising to us, if we sort of try to translate it in a contemporary terms. So I thought about, well, maybe, how about this? How does this feel? If you're Boston Irish, when, when was the last time you as Boston Irish, cherishing your heritage, cherishing your background, when, were you, when was the last time you were deeply encouraged by a Mexican-American in the Lord? Or let's say you are Asian-American. When was the last time you were deeply touched, your soul was so fed by an African-American brother or sister in the Lord? Or maybe you own a, uh, you know, summertime you own a property down at the Cape, and maybe you have multiple properties across the U.S., maybe elsewhere. When was the last time you were touched deeply and tenderly and profoundly by someone of no fixed address? of no, no abode. They, they live under a bridge. They live on by the side of a highway. When was the last time that person in Christ really touched you at a moment of trial and distress? Or here's another one that sort of seems appropriate. If, if you have a graduate degree, if you have a PhD or some further academic qualification, when was the last time someone who maybe didn't graduate high school really spoke into the window of your soul? in the Lord, in Christ, that prepositional phrase, in the Lord. You see, it's a two-way street, and to keep fresh, to keep dynamic, to keep motion on this walk, there needs to be this two-way comfort going on. But we need the eyes to see it, and we need the ears to hear it, that the Lord himself will provide comfort on this walk with Jesus. Well, there's another vital ingredient to keep walking with Jesus. And that's in verse 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, for I bear him witness that he's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. 
You could read this and say, well, look, it's a religious book, isn't it? The Bible's a religious book, and we're reading the New Testament, and these are kind of like heroes. You sort of make an image of them somehow. These are, we look at these people, as they've sort of got it all together, and, um, and maybe Epaphras in this, this example, this description of his uh, struggling in prayer, maybe this is just his personality, or he's come some kind of hero, um, and, well, yeah, I know that to pray is, yeah, that's kind of important, and I, maybe I pray before I go out to work in the morning, or maybe every now and again I pray and remember to pray for something. Um, I know prayers, it's kind of a part of the Christian life. Or maybe, maybe you say, well, yeah, I, I also I meditate. I'm not a Zen Buddhist. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a, I'm not a uh, you know, another faith tradition, but I, I meditate. I, I spend some quiet and I, re I reflect. And you say, yeah, that's, that's true. And that's, that's good to pray and to meditate. That's in line with, with the, the New Testament. Um, and we could say, yeah, that's in line with a thousand years of Christian theology and spirituality from the African Christian Augustine all the way through to the Italian Anselm, that prayer and meditation, that was where it was at. That was, that was the idea that the, the Christian community would pray based on Scripture, on the creeds, on the confessions, and that they would meditate profoundly, interact with this subversive interventionist story of the God of the universe providing a redemptive plan and deliverance for all time and all history, for all eternity, to meditate, to be immersed inside that story, that that was what was going on for a thousand years in terms of spirituality and Christian discipleship within the churches in the Western tradition. And it's all good, it's all beautiful, it's, it's true that our lives ought to be part, taught up with this level of engagement with the creator of the universe, the redeemer of our souls. And yet, it is quite possible within all of that, sort of subtly, without sort of noticing it, kind of like a mouse or a rat under the, under the carpet, sneaking in. There's a sense in which, yeah, I got this. You know, I, I, I've, I, I know how to do this. this. I know what's right, I know what's proper, we'll, we'll get it done. And there's a sort of little edge there that can, hap that can sneak in very subtly of self-righteousness, a sort of sense of presumption. And so we sort of uh, reduce, in, in some ways, we can reduce this, this scripture from Epaphras. But if we're reading the, this, this one sentence, this couple of sentences in light of the whole uh, chapter, the whole book, which is usually a good principle for reading something in context, we'll notice that the apostle himself in the first chapter speaks in a similar vein. In, in chapter 1, uh, verse 9, he says, And so from the first day we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then later on in chapter 1, verse 28, uh, he says in 29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And here's the piece. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Epaphras, like, in all likelihood, learned this from the apostle. It wasn't necessarily a certain personality trait. He, 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 he learned this from the apostle, and he was deeply acquainted with the intimacies of this young Christian fellowship in this uh, market town, if you will. 
he'd learned it, and what was it that he prayed? He prayed that they would uh, be firm in the will of God. They would be mature, stand mature, and be fully assured in all the will of God. In other words, that the total outworking of God's plan in history and eternity, that he would bring his kingdom. And the kingdom of God comes in three stages. It's a three-stage process. The first stage was the inauguration, the, the initiation of the kingdom of God that comes with the incarnation, comes with Christ coming to earth, particularly at his, at his baptism, all the way through the crucifixion and resurrection. That's the first sort of stage one. And stage two is from the resurrection to where the, the, the outworking, the development of the kingdom of God comes from from the resurrection all the way through to his return in glory when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And that stage two is what the New Testament and other scriptures call the last days. And then stage three is the culmination, the climax, the, the end game, if you will, the consummation when Christ returns in glory as the king and that publicly and visibly for all eternity all men and women are seeing this king because you can't have a kingdom without a king. Christ is indispensable to the kingdom. If there's no, there's no Christ, there's no kingdom. He is the kingdom. He is the king. And apart from him, you cannot have a kingdom. So what it is that Epaphras is praying for this fledgling Christian community is that they would reprioritize their lives. They would reinterpret their narrative, the story that the Greco-Roman world had given them or other sort of various mystery religions had given them about their own significance and worth and purpose and value in their lives to reinterpret that in line with this eternal kingdom. So he was praying that they would stand firm in their faith. Now, Epaphras most likely planted this church in Colossae, and I recently was reading Luther, and Luther too was interested in church planting, and he came, Martin Luther from the 16th century, the reformer, and he said, uh, made a little comment that is, was fairly popular some, some while ago about church planting, and Epaphras was a church planter. I think it, it has some relevance here. He said, wherever God erects a church, notice it's not men and women erect a church, it's God erects a church, and he says, the devil builds a chapel. The devil builds a chapel or a tavern next to it. And Luther understood this. And what he did was, after a thousand years of this tradition of, of prayer and meditation, of oratio, meditatio, he added a third leg to the stool of struggle, of tentatio. He said that struggle was a part because he recognized the devil was at work and that the trials and uncertainties of life would leave the believer to bend their knee in prayer before their maker. And so this struggle, whether it's from Satan himself or other events causing this turmoil, this desperation in the soul causes a struggle, which is the third, the part of the triad of this Christian experience, if you like, Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis 32. And it enables the believer to experience what one of Luther's uh, students said was the school of the cross, that the truths of the faith are not simply sort of up here, sort of on a placard or on a bookshelf or on a website or something. The truths of the faith are not up there. They're out in the nitty-gritty, in the mud, the mud and the muck of life. It's through those wrestling with those difficult and challenging concerns internally in the depths of our soul, but also external adversities and so on, in wrestling through those that the truths of the faith become ignited become powerful and transformational in their lives. And Epaphras, the, the, the church planter, had engaged in this level of 
prayer, this intense, if you like, urgent intercession. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge for you, and it's a challenge for me to learn about prayer. I'm speaking for myself, certainly maybe others. I feel in the kindergarten of prayer. And Epaphras, Luther, others are sort of in some sort of graduate school of the cross. They, They have penetrated, they've got further in this journey of prayer. Not only prayer for themselves, but as Paul says at the beginning of that, he's praying for others, those he hasn't even met yet. And so there's this sense in which wrestling and struggling for the kingdom of God to come, become real and the realities, the priorities in their lives, is, he's taken that on in his own prayer. And it can break that kind of prayer, evidently breaks through the smugness or the, self, the complacency of a walk with Jesus, to bring some freshness, to bring some vitality to it as much as comfort, this two-way street, then also this sense of struggle in prayer, of prayer in the school of the cross. Well, there's a third element here uh, at the end of the letter that brings vitality to the Christian walk, and it's in verse 18. It's just a little phrase. You sort of miss it, really. Remember my chains. Remember my chains. It's resonant, if you like, with Hebrews 13.3, where the author says, remember those in prison and those who are mistreated as though in prison with them. Most scholars believe the apostle was in prison when he was writing this in Rome. Uh, And it's it's hard. It's hard to remember. It's hard to remember many things. It's hard to remember those in prison. The Department of Corrections from Massachusetts reported in 2021 that there were almost 7,000 prisoners in Massachusetts. And it's, it's, it struck me, it's kind of hard to remember that because behind each prisoner there's a wife, there's a husband, there's a son, there's a daughter, there's an auntie, there's an uncle, there's a grandfather, there's a friend, there's a neighbor. There's, you know, remember those in prison. The implications are so profound. What does it mean to remember those who are in prison? Paul says, not just remember those in prison, but remember my chains. And how much harder, perhaps, to remember those who are in prison, not because they've broken the law, necessarily, or they have made a mistake, perhaps like Brittany Griner, but they're in jail because of their Christian faith. It's a sober reminder that the subversive theology of Paul is a threat to dictatorships. It's a threat to authoritarian regimes, to governments and systems, political systems and other systems that promise satisfaction, that promise security, that promise purpose, and yet demand absolute loyalty. It's a threat to those things. And it's also a reminder that that Christian theology, if you will, can result in imprisonment. It resulted in imprisonment for the Apostle Paul, and it also results in imprisonment today. A few weeks ago, I received an email from a Christian leader from the United Kingdom. He's well-respected and was asked by the British government to write a report on persecuted Christians in the world today. And he wrote back to me very quickly, and in his report, a lengthy report, uh, he, he wrote these words. Across the globe, in the Middle East, Asia, Africa, Christians are being bullied, arrested, jailed, expelled, and executed. Christianity is by most calculations the most persecuted religion of modern times. 
Yet, Western politicians until now have been reluctant to speak out in support of Christians in peril. Remember my chains. There were several case studies in the report, and one caught my eye in particular. It was from the city of Chengdu. It's 16 million people in Western China, a city I'd visited uh, almost over 30 years ago, and I remember being in Chengdu and not meeting any Christians there, and not that there weren't, but I just hadn't met them, and then visiting a few years later, just before the Beijing Olympics, going to the sports arena there where the uh, athletes were training, and had the opportunity to meet with some Chinese Christians in Chengdu. Well, this report cited a case in 2018, just a couple years ago, really, of a constitutional scholar and human rights activist and Christian pastor who was detained in December 2018 with his wife. His name was Pastor Wang, and his wife, Jiang Rong, were members of the Early Reign Covenant Church. They were rounded up by the police, and it was a high-profile case. It was covered by the South China Morning Post, by the New York Times, many media outlets across the world, The Guardian and so forth, covered this. Now, Pastor Wang had organized a prayer meeting. It was in May 2018 to commemorate the 10 years of the earthquake that had devastated Sichuan province. And he had also taken part in a petition that protested the government regulations instituted in February 2018 that he said would, he would use nonviolent methods to stand by his faith and oppose wicked laws, he called them wicked laws, that he said went against the Bible and God, including those that allowed crackdowns on churches. Well, his congregation, New Reign, Early, Early Reign Church there in, in Chengdu, had 100 members who were detained uh, over various periods of time by the police. And then on December the 9th, Pastor Wang and his wife were arrested on suspicion of subverting state power. Even his mother was brought under surveillance. His son was distraught, separated from his mom and dad. And uh, the security forces installed a camera, 360-degree camera, in the living room and bathroom of his own home. And when his wife was returned home, she was subjected to this degree of intrusion. Uh, members of the church were forced to sign a pledge that they would not return to the Early Reign Church. And according to one source, about 700 members of the church were monitored, followed, threatened by security authorities. Their cell phones were blocked from communication amongst each other. And today, Pastor Wang is enduring a nine-year prison sentence on alleged crimes of subverting state power. Remember my chains. The Christian faith today is largely a global south, a global east phenomenon. The Christian faith today is not largely an experience of privileged Westerners. It is largely an expression of the global poor. The persecution of Christians is indeed a human rights issue because the freedom to believe is one of the most basic and profound human rights that anybody can have. And it is on that right that many other rights depend. To say that Jesus is Lord presents just as radical challenge today as it did in Paul's day, to remember our brothers and sisters who are persecuted 
today in different countries is one way to realign ourselves, is one way to wake ourselves up in our own walk with Christ. Because when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers, or does it? Or they do, does the other part of the body even feel the pain and the hurt? Well, Paul closes his letter with these little words at the end of it, which really undergirds everything he's been teaching these new Christians in Colossae. It's the last four words, grace be with you. Grace be with you. Grace is God's reward at Christ's expense. Grace is this undeserved gift that's unrepayable to the maker of the universe. This is grace living. This is grace-motivated walking, if you will. And Paul began his letter with grace in chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be with you from God the Father, and he closes it with grace. Grace be with you. And why does he emphasize grace so much? He emphasized it because this was a fledgling, a new Christian fellowship, and that they could not sustain themselves if they followed the inadequate Christology, the, lack, the def defective views of Jesus that were being advertised in that part of what is now modern-day Turkey at that point. If they were following these sub-Christian practices of legalism, asceticism, of the mystery religions, and so on, if they were part of this mood of the Greco-Roman world, that part of the Mediterranean, that point, that mood that infected and infiltrated like a toxin into their spiritual consciousness, that they would not be able to endure or persevere without the grace of God. And so it is only by grace that we can continue to walk with Christ. Under his authority, he is supreme, he is sufficient. And it's under his authority and for his glory that his people are to walk and live. And why is that so important? It's so important because it's within the community that is showcasing the redemptive, the reconciling love of the Father for the Son by the Spirit for the world. It's only through that community that God is showcasing this different society, this new community through his grace. And he nourishes his people through his word, and he nourishes them through a meal, which we're about to partake of in a few moments in our service. It is grace, as the hymn writer said, taught my heart to fear. It is grace that motivates and stirs. It's grace. When the disciples were on the Emmaus Road, they walked along, they didn't realize the maker of the universe, the resurrected Son of God, the image of the invisible God, the one who had the fullness of God in him, who made all things for his glory through him and for him. They didn't realize he was right by their side. And as he opened the word, as he opened the bread to them, he was revealed to them. And it's the same for you and for me today. May we recognize he is walking alongside us, with us, and may our hearts burn within us also. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. You don't treat us as we deserve. We can never repay the inestimable gift of your son, the blood on the cross, the nails in his body, the crown of thorns, the shame, the dishonor, the injustice that he faced. O oh Lord, make Jesus real to us. And help us to know that he, he does not snuff out a smoldering wick. He does not crush. He does not crush us. He wants to heal us. Lord, help us to cling to you today and in the rest of our lives. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen.